Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted to have a returning guest today and one new one. So Rama Garawa is the head of the Helen Hamlin Centre for Design at the Royal College of Art. I've been a huge fan of the Helen Hamlin Centre for over a decade now. Um, and we've also got Melanie Flory, his colleague. Uh, Rama, you've just written a book as well about um, some really important topics. So why don't you start talking about inclusive leadership uh, and then maybe Melanie can also join in and explain her role in that. Absolutely. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. And just to show you what Neil is talking about, here we are. He, um, he, a crisply authored book. <laughs> it's called Creative Leadership, Born from Design. Um, and it's very much... Um, driven by design, but a collaboration with neuroscience, which probably describes um, uh, the relationship between Melanie and myself. Um, we both um, aim to improve life for people and planet, but do that coming to a creative endeavor through design and through neuroscience. So in brief, creative leadership is based on three human values um, of empathy, clarity, and creativity. It is for three types of people. It's for established leaders, emerging leaders, and the biggest group of all, those who were never billed to be leaders, whether that's by age, gender, race, geography, uh, uh, um, uh, economic circumstance, or most importantly um, for this chat, by disability, by access. So I think it really lends itself to that emerging discussion of not just representation in terms of access and ability, um, but also leadership. So it's not just being invited in the room, being invited to the table, um, or even being asked to eat. It's being asked, what should we eat? And it's, it's being asked, should we eat? So I think that is my... Um, culinary uh, analogy of where um, accessibility leadership needs to go. And just to bring in um, Mel at this point, um, please tell us a little bit about your role in the book and this whole landscape of leadership. So uh, very quickly, I joined the Helen Hamlin Center last year as their research director. But prior to that, Rama and I had been collaborating on uh, looking at creative leadership from various perspectives. Um, when I came to, uh, when I met Rama, I realized that this was a program that was organically, um, that had organically grown from Rama's experience as an engineer and a designer. Um, and his work right through the Helen Hamlin Center, working, starting off as designer and working his way up to directorship. So creative leadership is really hard, I think, to re to capture in, in a book. But uh, the value that I saw that we needed to raise it to was the effect of these three components of creativity, empath uh, empathy, and clarity. The value to raise it to the neuroscience, the psychology of these in terms of the biological models they afforded in, in terms of learning as a skill set, but also the capacity to include everyone, because everyone, it doesn't matter where you are in your life, 
has a capacity to be creative, um, empathic, and clear about about things that are dear to them or not. And to be able to then apply that to the behavior of leadership was something that I felt we could elevate this model to. Excellent. That's, that, that's really interesting. We talk quite a lot about creativity and how, in particular in the disability space, how uh, actually uh, disabilities, impairments and neurodivergences can be a trigger and a spur for innovation because we're dealing with challenges if we're almost forced to be creative um, anyway. Um, so, so that's a topic that we're, we're quite familiar with and, and, and to a certain extent ground that we've covered a little bit with Rama and others before. I think the the empathy piece, we, we also, you know, as assistive technologists and people in the accessibility space, we, we try to live and work and lead with empathy. But but I'm really interested in the, the clarity piece because the clarity pieces, um, both from a cognitive accessibility point of view and also a, a leadership point of view, I think really um, oft misunderstood and, and undervalued because we often, and I see this frequently, overcomplicate things because we wish to to, to portray that we're clever, that we're we're worthwhile as leaders, that we've you know acquired knowledge, and in doing so, we're excluding people. So, am I sort of on the right track here with what you're trying to get at in the book, or is there there more to it? Um, and and how might we learn to be more concise, be able to communicate with with less ambiguity? I think you're you're absolutely on the right track, and and um, coincidentally very clear there, Neil. Um, right. Clarity is born from communication. You know that's where the sun shines for clarity, but it is the most understudied principle. It is the one that ties together the other two, which are in common parlance. You know, empathy um, has been rising. In, in terms of the leadership landscape um, and needed more so than ever, given, you know, the last couple of weeks um, and the last couple of years. Um, creativity, as you say, is something we understand, you know, design makes every conversation better. But that third component of clarity was actually the last one to notch into place. And it's something that's often missing. Um, you know, um, I, I know Melanie will be able to speak about the neuroscience of where this comes from and the psychology of application. But to talk about the inception of this for the model, it came from a couple of different points of view. The Helen Hamlin Center has worked for nearly three, over three decades now with people of all ages and all abilities. Um, you realize they are amazing instigators and creators but there's a lack of clarity in hearing voices, in representation, in giving the platforms for people to express themselves. Um, and it's the same for people of, of all races, skin colors, ethnicities, and genders. And yes, there are more than two genders on the planet. So clarity came from quite a philosophical moment, a reflective moment, I would say, in two situations, one personal and one professional. Um, 
So the personal one was actually coming out of a relationship, which was rather messy. And we've all had those relationships. And I was thinking, what happened there? And then I realized I'd never figure out what was going to happen there. So I might as well in, enjoy the flight that I was on. And the fact that I wasn't going to get clarity was clarity in itself. And it actually allowed me to sleep that night. The second bit was looking at work challenges, professional challenges. And this word equality that was being bandied around 10 to 15 years ago. Um, you know, we've now looking at it more as equity and inclusivity. But the idea was that um, that how do people want to be treated? Is it equality? Do you treat people with a kind of tick, spot, tick box level of equality? Or do you actually enter into a more human understanding of what each individual needs? And the word came to mind, clarity. And I spent the next year saying, to people, is clarity actually what you want here? You know, and as a leader, is understanding clarity incredibly important? And I think, again, as you intimate, Neil, the um, accessibility disability area um, is ripe for this. In some ways, we've been speaking about living and breathing a lack of clarity for such a long time. We actually deeply understand where clarity can make an effect because we have been experiencing such a lack of it. And I say that um, also as an inclusive designer and a person who has designed things and worked with communities of all abilities. But it would be great to um, bring Melanie in here to talk a little bit about clarity as the third leg of the stool from the neuroscience and psychology point of view. Thank you, Rama. Um... For those of you listening, um, I can assure you I've never met Neil before, so I had no inkling that this question would come up. However, I just knew we'd be asked for clarity, and I, I have something from the book that I just want to quickly read out. And that's because as human beings, we hanker for clarity. It is in our nature to hanker for clarity, whether that's in a relationship. Where do I stand in this relationship? Whether it's in employment, you know, what is my role here? People work better, relationships work better, um, decision-making works better with clarity. But something that Rama wrote um, in terms of clarity on page 95, where he says, clarity is having a clear understanding of. Clarity is the ability to effectively communicate to be clear is to maintain an accountability mindset. So clarity is more than communication. In terms of neuroscience, it's, it's a biological need to know where one is going, to know where the next meal will come from. These are very old primal instincts in, in the human brain. The wonderful thing about actually what we're doing here is uh, is is raising it to another level. So the creative leadership actually takes these biological models, although Rama, you know, was working away and beavering away at this without realizing there's so much more value in it than uh, just a leadership model. Because when we, when we introduce reasoning into it, for example, 
there's a biological need to be clear about something. A mother needs to be clear that this is my offspring and therefore they include, they include that person in their love. But it's not so when it's something that doesn't concern us. Then we have to use the prefrontal cortex. You need to use reasoning in order to actually include people, to be clear about relationships, to be clear about accessibility. And what Clarity does in this model is by having an accountability mindset, by um, developing communication skills, you are working this prefrontal cortex uh, area of the body, uh, of the brain, in which you are thinking, empathically thinking about how it lands somewhere else. Um, and you're guiding yourself. So you're, it's, it's, um, it's a self-regulating model. You're self-regulating your thoughts. You're regulating emotion in order to land somewhere else, in order to be accessible to uh, and be accessed by. And to that extent, clarity is... Um, you know, a really huge part of or, or one of the foundational aspects of the three aspects. Um, I hope that was clear. Yeah, so, so, so thank you. I, I, I think it's, it's really interesting because we live in, in times of great ambiguity and, and to a certain extent there's been a, a huge amount of talk about resilience. And that resilience requires us to be able to cope with that ambiguity and and those that, that are, are doing well right now are those that that have developed some way of sense making from this complexity and that are able to either like rama did with with the relationship come to terms with the fact that it will always be ambiguous and and, and the clarity is that that's the case and, it, and, and move on or, or that they can find a way of like the mother, determining what's relevant to them. Uh, and and so I think that this is particularly the case, you know, in, in terms of accessibility, the, the lack of clarity as to what organisations need to be to be inclusive because of the diversity of uh, different types of disability, different disability models, cultures, ethnicity, you name it. It's hugely complex uh, can act as a barrier to to us taking any action on inclusion so how can we use the the sort of the the three legs of the stool to make sure that we don't get uh into the sort of analysis paralysis and and actually do something and take positive steps to 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 lead and be more inclusive and to, to start being the tide that rises, uh, rises all the boats, et cetera? So this is a great question, Neil. And the, the simple answer is balance. The three values are a tripartite model. They're a sort of trefoil model. They feed into each other and they balance. There are days when only empathy um, is needed, but there are days when only clarity will save the day. <laughs> you know, we, we say in the book, um, at the end of empathy or over-empathy, that's when you need clarity. And each of these, you know, if we look at the world of accessibility and inclusivity, it can be um, bewildering when you start to look at 
individual needs and assessments. Um, very, uh, very often, um, you know, when we start, first started our work with um, um, uh, autistic adults, people living with autism, one of the things we heard from an expert was if you meet 100 people with autism, you have met 100 different people. It's not the film with Dustin Hoffman and, you know, Rayman, basically, and Tom Cruise. Um, so empathy, clarity, and creativity are active, dynamic forces. A simple way of remembering them is head, heart, and hand, because we speak about clarity, you know, having tone, tones of the head, of intellect, of decision-making. You know, if you only have clarity, you may be some kind of despot or dictator, you know, who are often very clear in their missions. Um, you know, um, we don't need to look too far nowadays to see that. Um, empathy, if you only have empathy, um, you may be seen as a weather vane leader, um, listening to the last opinion and kind of over-exhausting yourself. And if you only have creativity um, without empathic practice or the, the, the direction, the motivation of clarity, um, you may be a bicycle with no chain, pedaling hard and going nowhere. So we've done a lot of work on how these values interact, how they balance and rebalance each other. Um, and, you know, one thing Melanie brought in when she came into this work is she said, um, you know, that they, they're they an ever-changing, ever-dynamic value. And part of our work as human beings is to look at the interplay and when I when I look at the world of inclusivity and accessibility, um, I'm rather inspired by an internet wit who wrote, um, "You could throw up all, throw away all HR manuals if you were to live under the banner, uh, the banner, be kind." And in some ways, you know, clarity, empathy, creativity—it's about navigating the dotted line between simplicity and complexity because human beings live a full dime, you know live the full dimensions of their life whatever their ability whatever their needs and how do we understand and address that so i think going back to the start of my answer the it's really about balance and one of the book chapters is actually called achieving balance and it speaks to the dynamic play between the two and the very final thing before i hand over to melanie is balance has its kind of yogic, meditative, spiritual sense. But balance is a dynamic thing too. You know, the plane on the ground is a lumbering giant. Up in the sky, it's a weightless bird. Um, a plane is making thousands of micro adjustments to stay in the air. But that's dynamic balance. Also an athlete, also someone in a wheelchair, um, wheeling them themselves through Oxford Circus Station, um, if it's accessible. Um, th uh, thinking of, um, you know, someone, then the mother carrying her baby, as Melanie brought out, a human being walking. All of these are activities of dynamic balance. So I think that's what we mean when we talk about balance. It's not withdrawing from life and sitting under a tree. <laughs> it's an active, progressive, dynamic, but centered thing. Um, 
I'll just jump in here. Um, I really love that question, uh, Neil, about how how do you have clarity in a VUCA world? Um, and I think the first thing is for human beings is to to be able to put these traits in uh, into practice is to drop the stress response, which is what VUCA does when there's volatility and uncertainty and chaos, both cognitively, but also uh, for what's happening in the Ukraine now. People are biologically, you know, scared for their lives. And I think the first thing is is to deal with that stress response, to be comfortable with the fact that there are things you are conscious about in 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 terms of VUCA, you know, what's uncertain. So being comfortable with there are some things you're conscious about, and that straight away starts to move you into a, a Rama called a balance, into a place of power when you say there are what in this VUCA world, what in this VUCA situation am I conscious about? You know, my, my I don't know where my next meal is coming from or whether I will have safety to go to Poland, whatever, you know, taking the Ukrainian situation. There are things that I'm un, that, that are, I have no consciousness about, and that is my own at, um, actions, for example, when something comes up, to things that I just don't have access to because they're unconscious. But there's another aspect where there are things that are just not known. When human beings actually are able to be comfortable with that, the first impulse that comes from a VUCA, when you're comfortable with VUCA, with um, any kind of uncertainty or chaos or temporariness, which is threatening, is creativity. That prefrontal cortex starts to take over because the autonomic nervous system, the stress response decreases. And that's where this this balance that Rama is talking about, like a pilot, where you've got, you know, three million hits of uh, chemical hits in the body because of your thinking. But where that thinking comes from starts to change in the uh, the location in the brain where that thinking starts to come from changes. And that's where you're able to then apply creativity, which then empathy and, you know, and then clarity. And this is like another cycle of events, uh, an iterative process that feeds on itself. Quite, quite uh, frequently, you know, organizations, you know, uh, try to address innovation in many different ways. Sometimes they go externally, try to find something outside and they bring it inside because they feel that they are not in, they are not enough people inside their organization that can, can be innovative. Uh, others, they just prefer to acquire innovation that belongs to others, and they do mergers and acquisitions. But I think uh, in the element that you're talking here, there's also an, an element of collective listening to the people that are is around you. So following that, how can we uh, apply uh, creative leadership to collective organizations for them to become more inclusive themselves. Rama, this is definitely yours. <laughs> <laughs> so I was um, um, fiddling with the mute button. <laughs> it's what I've been doing for most of 2020 and 2021 <laughs> is playing with mute, mute buttons. Um, so Creative leadership is born from several tones, several instances of dissatisfaction with the world around and gentle dissatisfaction because you don't want to stay in a complete state of dissatisfaction all the time. 
one of one of them was looking at a very simple question when we want to change an organization we often go to a consultancy whether it's a creative one a management one you know organizational change consultants when we want to change individually it's do more yoga go running spend some time watching sunsets um and these two worlds have not seemed to meet in my life so you go away for a, for a weekend and you come back and then you're stressed by the 500 emails that you've missed so in the book a little passage a little quote from it says um carrots and consultants are not an answer in themselves so you know eating more carrots or hiring more consultants is not an answer it's about bringing the two together why do we expect people to be one way at work and one way at home so what's the truest sense of self and this is what creative leadership aims to bring you to because your truest sense of self is not defined by your ability your disability your skin color your gender um your truest sense of self is an internal journey which will have external effect so creative leadership looks to address those changes those needs within you know the individual within the group within the department within the project within the organization so it's internally facing and outwardly facing as well so mel i, I didn't know if you wanted to add something um, i was going to say because um creative um creativity empathy and clarity they they begin with uh, the power, the 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 strength of this model is that it encourages self regulation uh, self regulation of cognition thought emotion behaviors so and and also the practice of it the deliberate practice of actually building empathic skills or uh, the the deliberate practice of choosing to halt a uh, a uh, a habitual response every time you do that you are actually interfering with a uh, um connective um uh, a system in the brain a connective system in the brain and when you start practicing this um deliberately what you have is the ability to self regulate self regulation is something that human beings can learn very well from each other we have in our brain something called mirror neurons if um and self regulation just self regulation is a very powerful skill um and it tends to hold the room the person that is most self regulated in the most highest value emotion let's say we are having a disciplinary uh, hearing uh the judge who is there uh and who is actually holding court the reason why everybody looks up one of the aspects of being a judge rather than a, a lawyer for example not that there's any i have any prob you know any a uh, kind of status difference between the two is the thought processes the cognition the behavior and the emotion that a judge practices and learns how to to actually exhibit is very different it's palpable in a room 
And so, Antonio, your question about how does this actually play out as a group, that self-regulation, when it becomes collective, is absolutely powerful. That is that brand thing you hear about regularly when you go, oh, this is an Ivy League university, or Google is one of those, you know, you talk about the culture of them. And when you look underneath at what those cultures are um, and what you know, those brands, what they're doing today in the world, you can very easily pick out these three um, aspects of behavior. They're not the only behaviors, but they're very strong. They're very much part of the DNA there. So that that's how that collective, uh, biologically, mirror neurons help. But of course, collective learning is fabulous for this, uh, you know, where we get together and, and practice these uh, skills. So I have a, a, a follow-up question on that is, you know, we know that many of us, you know, we're all here connected remotely you know, from, from, our house, from our homes. Many people at, at work, this has became uh, our normal. But at, at the same time, many of us are spending their full days on meetings. So that's not really ideal for what we want to achieve as a kind of a well-being How can, uh, you know, considering this type of reality that we are in, what type of ideas and suggestions do you have in order to break away from this type of day-to-day -day rhythm that forces you to go into this type of, uh, that work is putting us on, and some people are not able to escape from it, you know. They're not even, they are afraid of saying, no, I can't go to that meeting, but, well, on that meeting there's someone important, and then they might miss you, so... People have to face all these challenges. So what is your take on this? Uh, Rama, do you want to go first? I was I was going to volunteer yourself, but okay, I I'll, I'll jump in there because this is a really important question. From a neuroscience perspective, there is a worry about um, that Uh, one, the need that we are, we are deciding really important things, we're discussing really important things, and we're doing this on this flat screen. Not only that, in a usual meeting, we're not, we're not used to seeing our face. You're actually talking to other people. You're getting the reaction, and these mirror neurons are able to actually work. In the brain, for somebody like myself, there's the worry about the sensory input that we're missing. Let's just start from there. And as those areas are working less, what effect does that have on behavior, on social behaviors? These are really, really important questions. Um, and the fact that we sit at our desks, you know, much more than we, we do have meetings sitting down, but we can have it in different stimuli. We can have it in a coffee shop. We can have it, uh, you know, uh, in, in the office room if, if, you know, that stifles us, or we can have it in front of, you know, where there's light hitting our eyes. We don't have control over that during COVID. That control has been taken away. That's the first thing. The second is people process information differently. Some people are very visual. Some people need 3D. I need 3D. I really do not like every now and again my eyes going back to, oh, how's my hair doing? on this uh, on this meeting it, it really is unusual for us to actually work like that you know so um, for a neuroscientist this is really worrying uh, in in terms of how do we solve it I think technology will go to some to some degree to be able to create three-dimensional it is just not the same 
What our brains will look like in 2,000 years if we continue to go down this route is anybody's guess. But, um, you know, having said that, we built a fabulous new space, a three-proper space uh, where the Helen Hamlin Center have just moved into. So please come there and, you know, engage with us, engage with the objects we make and, uh, you know, uh, the prototypes that we build. So, Rama, I'll hand over to you. So it's a, it's just a short um, further comments to that. I, you know, I think that was a great answer, um, um, uh, Mel. I, I think um, one antidote is to just actually bring people back into the room together and look at the difference. So as Mel says, our new building opened last week and we had our first series of meetings. Um, the personalities the connectivities, the, the 4D reading of the room um, was so incredibly different. I think in, an, in a two-hour meeting, it, which um, would have felt like torture online, but it was, it was an ideation meeting, it felt so energized, and I think we got through five times as much. I would say being in, on a 2D screen is a disabling condition, mentally, physically, spiritually. Um, in many ways, the pandemic brought the world to a standstill, but in a way that many people with disabilities have to live um, with every day um, in, in, in so many limited and limiting circumstances. So I would hope that um, people actually step forward from that with a sense of empathy and don't get comfortable in your pajamas in the living room because the flip side we also see from the companies we work with and those around us is um, people complained about needing to be at home and people are complain, complaining about going back in the office. And sometimes you hear people saying, well, I can do all that I need to do from home. Can you live life from the same room, the same four walls where, um, you know, someone pipes in food, electricity, lighting? Because the other word for that is prison. So um, think of it spiritually, think of your human spirit and think of its need, as Mel says, to actually see the world in four dimensions. You know, so the three dimensions of physicality, but the fourth dimensions of emotional reading, of sensory reading. And if all else fails, um, this was part of our creative leadership workshops is go and smell something citrus because it will actually activate um, some of those creative channels in the brain. And if you need to rest, you know, I'm looking out my window right now. Um, I can see green in the distance. There's a wall of trees in the distance. So go and stare at some green in the middle distance and it will help reset you. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. I think we, we've lost the, uh, the time and space to ruminate which is really important for for good decision making and ideas. We've we've hit the buffers on our time. I could continue this conversation for ages. So I just need to um, thank my clear text for helping us out with the captions. Thank Rama and, and Melanie. Look forward to you joining us on on Twitter on Tuesday. Fantastic. Thank you very much, and and look forward to to reading the book on creative leadership. Thank you. Thanks all. Bye bye. Thank you, Neil and Antonio.